Explicit language warning. We're cursing a lot in this episode, so don't listen to it with your kids. Or do. I'm not their mother. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about the terror of gender, feminism, and today, one of Canada's worst exports. It's not Howie Mandel. Not this time. Though we do feel very sorry about that one. Every week, we talk about what fresh hell is being unleashed on the girls and the gays, the theys and thems, and anyone else similarly committed to a society free of cis male dominance. Indeed, this is a community full of she-sheds. No man caves! I'm your host, Sachi Cole. You probably know who Megan Thee Stallion is, otherwise known as the hottest woman in America. That's actually fact-checked. You can look it up on Snopes right now. I will wait. <laughs> my yeah. next song is Cash It, and this song just went platinum. It's my first... <laughs> it's my first platinum song ever, so, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Woo! Real hot girl shit. Yeah, I'm in my bag, but I'm in his too. And that's why every time you see me... I but maybe I have to tell you who Tory Lanez is. Here he is yelling about where he is from, as we all do sometimes. What's poppin'? Canada! Brand new whip, just hopped in. Tori is a rapper from, like he said, Ontario, Canada. But I have serious, significant doubts that you know him from his music. In all probability, you know who Tori is because of what he did to Megan in 2020. Here she is telling part of her story to Gail King of CBS last year. So I get out the car and it's like everything happens so fast. And all I hear is this man screaming. Is he said dance, and he starts shooting, and I'm just like, oh my god! Like he shot a couple of times, and I, I so was so scared. So is he in the car shooting from the car, Megan? He is standing up over the window, okay. shooting, uh-huh. and I didn't even want to move. I didn't want to move too quick, like because I'm like, oh my god, if I take the wrong step. I don't know if he can shoot something that's like super important. I don't know if he could shoot me and kill me. Like, Were you afraid for your life at that I time? I was really scared because I had never been shot at before. Mm-hmm. In July 2020, Tori and Megan were friends. They were on their way home from a party at Kylie Jenner's house. And while driving back, Tori and Megan got in an argument and he ended up shooting her in the foot. This case has been ongoing for what feels like the majority of Megan's career. But since the shooting, she's made more music, like this remix with Beyonce. I'm a savage, had a too nasty. Talk big shit, but my bank account match it. Hood, but I'm classy. Rich, but I'm ratchet. Haters kept my name in And then she won a Grammy for this performance, which tells us that there really isn't anything worth doing that does not involve Beyonce. If you know me, you have to know that Ever since I was little, I was like, you know what? One day, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be like the rap Beyonce. (laughs) That was definitely my goal. And I remember I went to the rodeo for the first time and I saw Destiny's Child perform. And I was like, you know what? Yes, I'm about to go hard. I love her work ethic. I love the way she is. I love the way she carries herself. And my mama will always be like, Megan, what would Beyonce do? And I'm always like, you know what? (laughs) What would Beyonce do? But let me make it a little ratchet. (laughs) But... But last week in particular was another pivotal moment for Megan, because it was time for Tory Lanez to be sentenced. It's been clear for a very long time that he did indeed shoot her, even if there are plenty of uneducated goons on the internet who think she's making it up. 
Megan's story about what happened with Tori is pretty clear. She has physical proof of her injuries, and he promised her money if she kept her mouth shut about what he did. But despite so much undeniable proof, it seemed perfectly possible that Tori would get just a slap on the wrist. And then we would have to tolerate an album cycle from him built entirely on Megan Thee Stallion's very toned shoulders and all of her suffering. But hey, sometimes the world can surprise you. The verdict is in. Tory Lane's found guilty on all three counts in his assault trial, where he was accused of firing gunshots at Megan the Stallion. Less than a month after court proceedings began, the Canadian rapper now awaits sentencing. He faces more than 22 years in prison and possibly deportation. Tory got a 10-year sentence, and it's possible that he could get deported back to Canada. And since his sentencing, there have been plenty of people online banging the same drum. That Megan lied, or that he doesn't deserve this much time, and that he didn't even do anything wrong. So I called Kathleen Newman-Bermang to talk about it. She's the deputy director for Refinery29 and a Torontonian to boot. So what stuck out to you the most during Tory Lanez's sentencing? Like, did 10 years seem proportional? Did it seem expected? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about expected, but I think it seemed proportional. One of the things I saw online of the many infuriating, frustrating things I saw online during this trial and during the sentencing were people saying that 10 years was too much for what he did. And that, to me, is ridiculous. So, okay, I want to list off the three felonies that he was convicted of. Assault with a semi-automatic firearm having a loaded unregistered firearm in a vehicle and discharging a firearm with gross negligence. He was convicted of all three of those. The highest sentence he could have gotten was 22 years. He got less than half that. So to me, 10 years, that's a long time, yes, but it seems proportional, absolutely. And I actually think he should have got the full 22 because this man shot Megan the Stallion, and there is no debate about that. That's another thing that I think stood out to me. Like, we're at sentencing, and people are still talking about whether it happened or not. It happened. He was convicted of it. It's It was ridiculous. So, yeah, 10 years, you know, and he's probably not going to serve that full time either. So, yeah, I think I think it was proportional. And it did feel, as much as you can say this in the American justice system, it did feel a bit like justice. Yeah. And w- what do you think it means that he got the 10 years. 10 isn't nothing. And I really thought there was a chance that he was going to get nothing. So I'm curious. It's not like a precedent setter, but it does seem to be saying something that he got any time at all. Yeah. And I think that has a little bit to do with his complete lack of remorse and how much the defense kind of changed their story, went back and forth. And and Tori still, you know, to this day refused to apologize or to admit that it happened. And so I think that, you know, when that comes to sentencing, judges very much are like, okay, you're you're going away for a while if you can't even admit to this or feel any sort of remorse. But I also think it's telling that you and I felt the same way were like, didn't think he was going to get anything, that it was going to be like a slap on the wrist. Um, And I think that speaks to a larger issue of how black women are treated um, in America and how uh, little were believed and how little were respected. And that, I think, is indicative of a larger issue and of the misogynist war that black women face in the justice system and especially victims of gendered violence. 
it's actually interesting that we're even talking about this case because when Tori first shot Megan, she didn't even want to go to the police at all. This is an example of how Black women consistently protect Black men over themselves because in trying to protect her abuser, Tori, she lied and said that she had stepped on glass. And that's what the cuts on her feet were. You know, there is body cam footage of her feet bleeding profusely. And, you know, she lies and says that was because she stepped on glass, not because of gunshots. And she does that to protect Tori. She does it to protect everyone else in the car. And because she did that, that fueled this narrative. And, you know, it's something that people keep coming back to. Well, she lied. Why did she lie to the police? Are you kidding me? Why? Like... We know that the police are not people to be trusted. They are not an institution to be trusted by Black folks, especially not in America. And so, of course, she tried to do something to protect them. And so it is so frustrating, I think, to see that because she lied to try to protect herself and to protect Tori, it is now being used against her. And I think that one of the, the biggest things that, you know, I've been saying over and over as this case has been playing out for three years is that Megan didn't want to come forward publicly at first about this. She would have let people think that she stepped on glass and she would just have known forever that Tori Lane shot her, but she didn't want the public to know. It seems like, and I'm speculating here, but that Tory Lanez got scared that she was going to tell people. And so he started pushing this narrative that she was a liar. He started bringing up really, you know, sexist comments about her dating history and just spreading all of these lies about Megan. And so that's when she named him as the person who shot her was because Tory Lanez made this a public spectacle. And that's the only reason she came forward. And then also it's important to note that the case was brought against Tory Lanez, not by Megan, but by the Los Angeles district attorney's office. And at no point was Megan the stallion on trial here. Like she's had to relive the worst night of her life. This horrific traumatic event and she's had to just like convince people it even happened i I truly can't imagine you know she wrote an op-ed in l after the sentencing came down and she said that you know she said i've had to watch my abuser call me a liar i've had to i didn't even think that i would have to prove to people that this happened to me and yet that's what she's had to do for three years I've been watching this case along with everyone else, and I have realized that there's something kind of familiar to me about Tori's general disposition. The arrogance, the inability to shut the fuck up to his own detriment, the fact that he and I are around the same height and I'm not tall. And then, while on a recent trip to visit some friends and some family in Canada, it hit me. Tori Lanes is just a Toronto man's. Of course, it's not that complicated. He is part of the subsection of men who come from the general Toronto area, the sometimes cloistered suburbs. These men like to say they're from Toronto, but that's like people from Long Island saying they're from New York City. Very offensive. They also share some, how do you say, behavioral commonalities. Tori, along with basketball player and former Khloe Kardashian paramour Tristan Thompson, both come from Brampton. The Weeknd and Daniel Caesar hail from Scarborough. If you're American, I know the concept of the Toronto Mans might seem foreign, 
But for a lot of Canadians, namely women of color, we know the Toronto man's well. And guys, he's worthless. And he has been crossing the border. He lives amongst you. So why so down on a Toronto man's? Well, you'll hear about it from a local. We talk more with Kathleen all about Megan, Tori, and the Six right after this Hey, Waves listeners. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes, too, like last week's about why all those First Lady hopefuls want to be Jackie O. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Sachi Cole, and I'm joined by Kathleen Newman-Bermang, Deputy Director of Refinery29 and Notable Torontonian. We're talking about the recent sentencing of Tory Lanes for shooting Megan the Stallion, specifically why his abhorrent behavior feels so emblematic of the Toronto mans. And mans, by the way, is Toronto slang derived from Jamaican patois. It just means like a Toronto guy. Have you ever wondered why Drake is always performing patois despite being from Toronto? We have also been asking this very question. Kathleen, our audience is mostly American. Our producers are American. I'm wondering if you can tell me, as if I am not Canadian, as if I never lived in Toronto, what is a Toronto man's and is Tory Lanez one of them? I knew you were going to ask me this. And I looked up the Urban Dictionary definition of a Toronto man's and I'm dying at it. So I would like to read it in full, please. Please. Thank you. Okay. A male from age 20 to 40, typifying the urban Drake wannabe. The Toronto man's wears Canada Goose knockoff parkas and athletic gear at all times. At least one item of apparel must bear the logo of the Raptors of the Toronto Blue Jays. Chains and axe body spray are mandatory accessories, as well as the cheapest item possible that bears the logo of an expensive brand. Toronto man's, <laughs> <laughs> Toronto man's use the word bro, bro, twice in every sentence, unless they're trying to be really classy. And then they'll say brother. And despite the name, <laughs> Toronto man's is probably from Mississauga. Oh my God. I mean, the accuracy. It is, that is pretty on point. Why, why, Shirty? What are you saying right now? You're blessed? You're blessed? Say what I hear actually blessed right now. I right, so like, Man, I just had to come over here real quick, Oz, because I saw you moving from across the street, and I was like, hey, yo, you're actually looking like a sweeter ting, I lie. So I came up, I was like, hey, yo, and now I'm shooting my shots. Like, what are you saying about that stuff? A Toronto man's is really like, you know him when you see him, or smell him, or feel his his hand on the, the lower part of your back as he needlessly slides behind you at a bar that is empty. It is an empty bar. <laughs> It is, you know, I don't think you could talk about Toronto mans without talking about them in like the adjacency to dating because Toronto mans are very focused and you can see this in the music of Drake or Tory Lanez, very focused on women, very focused on dating. And we're talking about like, obviously, cis, straight Toronto mans. And it is, it just shows up in a very specific ridiculous way and i think the commonality is the veneer of niceness or like emotional intelligence so that man like creepily touching the small of your back is trying to pretend that he's like one of the good guys this is like classic drake he had that like good guy nice guy 
stereotype, right? And I think that that plays into like the Canadians are so nice stereotype, which is usually like rooted in whiteness a lot of the time. But this plays into that like stereotypical Toronto man's and Drake is their king. Most Toronto man's are black or men of color. Like Simu Liu counts as a Toronto man's. I also know some white Toronto man's, which are the worst because they actually, they don't know they're white. So that's, that's a bigger problem. Can you run me through some Toronto man's that, that international audiences would, would know? Yes. Tristan Thompson is a Toronto man's from Brampton, also like Tory Lanez. I think they are the worst breed of Toronto man's, clearly, based on the examples. Drake. And then Tory Lanez is now is now the, the ultimate. What about The weekend? Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. If, <laughs> if Drake is the king of Toronto man's, The weekend is the prince, of course. I'm so sorry I forgot him. He's also the prince who's, like, trying to slit his dad's throat so he can be the king. Because I think he's, like, the brightest example for a lot of people because they watch what he what happens. So I'm wondering, how would you contextualize The weekend as a Toronto man's? What is it about his behavior in the last couple of months that really crystallized it? Because I feel like we saw it in Toronto like 10 years ago when he started coming up. Nobody liked him. <laughs> Nobody local liked him. I didn't watch The Idol um, because I just couldn't. But I think the character that he plays in The Idol is like very indicative of like the specific havoc that he was wreaking through Toronto. He and like his crew, which includes Drake, for a long time. Um but also, you know, it's interesting because The weekend is not like that nice guy, good guy stereotype at all. I don't think at any point you would ever s- have said that The weekend was. But he was sensitive. Remember? Exactly. He started as like moody. Yes. I don't want to go to the party. I just want to hold your hand. Yes, exactly. And I think The weekend stands and his music stands in stark contrast to like that very like American black masculinity. And I think that's also where Toronto man's like that lane that they live in, which is like standing in contrast to being American, but also desperately trying to be American. I think Toronto as a city does this a lot. Like we position ourselves beside New York. We talk a lot. Our industry doesn't have its own like real star system. All of our celebrities are American celebrities because they move there and become American. And I think that identity crisis lends itself to these men like not knowing who they are, but also trying to posture and be like, I'm not just big for Toronto. I'm also big for the States. And in that, it's like an insecurity that they take out on women that they date and on women in general. And I think that that this is a very complicated way to say that they're trash and that they're, as we say in Toronto, they're waste men. And that is what the weekend is. And I, again, like to go back to Tory Lanes, I think that, you know, we started this off by being like, who is this man? Like, who is this person? How are we even having this conversation of him in, rela- in relation to Megan Thee Stallion, who is like this beautiful, exceptional person, artist, just so talented. And Tory Lanes is like this little man who, who, who is he? We don't know. And I think that is like such a good example of a waste man. Like they they cannot bring anything to the table. Well, what do we make of that? It seems like the Toronto man has really gone global and there's so many of them in the States. And we know them because we know some of their worst behavior. So there seems to be, is there something endemic about this to 
a certain subsection of black men in Toronto, it seems like it's tied up in their concepts of masculinity, in their feelings around capitalism, their feelings around sort of American exceptionalism and Canadian frailty. Like what like what is it? They just why why do we have so many, Kathleen? Why am I finding them in New York? Tori did say something about being Canadian to try to defend himself at some point in this case. And it speaks to all the things that you're speaking about, which is like that insecurity about being Canadian, but also that assumed like specialness, like I am Canadian, so therefore I am different. And the way that they um, extol their masculinity and, you know, kind of participate in the patriarchy is different, but it's almost more insidious and frustrating. And I think Drake is such a good example of this because Drake is a guy that has a song called Nice For What, where that video, you know, he trotted out all of these incredible women and tried to, you know, call himself a feminist and say that, you know, he is the rapper. We know how ingrained misogyny is in hip hop and how horrible that genre has been to women, specifically black women. And Drake tried to set himself apart. Like, I am not a part of that. And I think his Canadianness definitely added to that, him, him trying to separate himself. And then this is the same guy on a song with 21 Savage, said, this bitch lied about getting shots, but she's still a stallion. So that, of course, I mean, I some people have tried to defend him and say that this is not about Meg the Stallion, but of course it is. And even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't, he knows that that is how it would be interpreted because it was right when the trial was going on. And so he is implying that Megan the Stallion lied about being shot, which is just so infuriating that this man that claims to be a feminist would add to the fire and add to the horrible misinformation that was going on about Megan Thee Stallion, add to, you know, just this narrative that Black women shouldn't be believed when they are victims of gendered violence. Like, it is just makes my blood boil. And I think that he has been able to get away with all of this because of this, like, I'm different. I'm not like that other like that um example of black masculinity that uh is so american i'm canadian so i'm different i hope forever that people remember drake's lyric about megan the stallion and now that tory lanes has been sentenced and that we know the facts of this that this never leaves him and every i mean drake doesn't do interviews but in every interview he does from now on i hope someone asks him about this i hope in every comment section he has to be reminded of this i hope this man never knows peace because this lyric is so heinous okay let's take a quick break i wanted to tell you to stick around to hear our slate plus segment Every week, Slate producer Shayna Roth recaps, and just like that, the Sex and the City sequel where everyone dies. This week, Shayna's got me on the show to talk all about episode 10. It's part one of a two-part finale because this show does whatever it wants, apparently. And if you want to support our show or any of the shows you hear on Slate, consider joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. 
To learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. We're back. I'm Sachi Cole, and I'm here with Kathleen Newman-Bermang. So Megan Thee Stallion is a really good rapper. She's really beautiful. People like her. She's likable. She's popular. And Tory Lane sucks. So I'm trying to understand why there were so many people so ready to shit on her and so ready to support him. Like, this isn't a Johnny Depp, Amber Heard situation where Johnny Depp has more uh, celebrity capital. He is famous by association. He's popular by association. And Megan Thee Stallion is like, he doesn't even come marginally close to her success or her talent, to be honest. And I think that's part of, I think that's part of why he hates her. I think that's part of why he did this, um, I'm sure, is is jealousy. But I think that this is misogynal war fully at play, this like distinct oppression that Black women face that is the intersection between sexism and racism, um, which was a coi- uh, term coined by Professor Moira Bailey. I think that this is just an example of that. Like the fact that Tory Lanez is nobody, the fact that Tory Lanez is bad at his job and Megan Thee Stallion is beloved and she is so good at her job. Like I didn't even know Tory Lanez had fans like this. These are just people who, oh, you shot a black woman? Cool, I'm a ride for you now. Like it is wild to me, but it's so just proof of this concept of what black women face because Megan Thee Stallion is beloved, again, beautiful, famous, rich, and this is what she's facing. So imagine what happens to black women who do not have her social capital, who do not have her wealth. I mean, I don't have an answer for you as to why this is happening other than racism, other than the world hates black women. There is no other answer, I think, because if you look at it logically and legally, All the evidence is there. All the facts are there. This is the truth. It has been proven in a court of law. And people are still quick to not believe Megan Thee Stallion. There's always some discourse whenever Black men enter the judicial system about whether or not it's fair and how it's rigged. This comes up a lot often when the person accusing them of harm is a Black woman. It's like one of the first things that comes up now. It's a thing to sort of hide behind? Do you find, were you finding that that was happening a lot? I felt like I was reading those opinions from a lot of, from some black men who really were like, this is unfair. He's being railroaded. Yeah, for sure. There's that like intra-community strife that happens all the time. And I think it happens more often to protect black men than it does to protect black women. We saw it with R. Kelly over and over again, where, you know, the majority of his victims, I think all of his victims were black girls and black women. And there was just, yeah, so much of a defense uh, for him because this is just the system trying to bring a black man down. The same rhetoric was used with Bill Cosby. And I think, you know, two things can be true. The American justice system oppresses black men and the system is rigged against black men who are wrongfully accused and imprisoned unjustly all the time. Also, Tory Lane shot Megan the Stallion, and he was convicted within this system and will serve time for the crime that he committed, justly. Those two things can be true. I think we can hold those two truths at the same time. And I think that the people that try to use that first argument that does have truth to it, I don't think they're doing it in good faith. I don't think they're doing it to try to actually change a system that, you know, wrongfully uh, imprisons Black men disproportionately. 
I just think they're trying to make an excuse for whatever black man they're caping for in the moment. Um, because if they were really against this system that harms black men, they would also be advocating for the same system that harms black women in a, in a different way. And in certain cases, especially in this one, and in even more harmful and disgusting, frustrating way. It feels like the vitriol against Megan the Stallion was especially big. Like it was bigger than even what I would have expected if you told me this was was happening 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it was bigger and specific because it was an example of misogynoir. And I think we saw that play out in real time in court and on social media with Megan Thee Stallion, you know, led by bloggers and podcast hosts who know nothing about court cases like DJ Academics. There was so much misinformation spread about the trial. There were, you know, fabricated details coming out before court had even started for the day. And I think when you look at how Megan was treated, despite all the evidence, you can't look to anything but ingrained oppression and a system working against black women because logically and legally there is no debate you know this man was convicted charged and sentenced Tory Lanez shot Megan Thee Stallion period but I think because black women are not believed and because there are you know the strong black woman stereotype that fits into misogynoir war that black women need to be this perfect victim which we know does not exist but even if they were because there's this idea that we are are stronger and um, that we cannot be harmed, that we are the aggressors, that we are the ones that perpetrate the harm. Um, I think that's, that's at play here. And I think people look at Megan's size, you know, there's colorism coming in here because she is a dark skinned, thick, tall black woman. There was always something about her physicality too, as if as if being strong and tall would somehow protect her from getting harmed, which does not make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. But exactly. It's because Megan was, is a tall, uh, like physically strong Black woman that she couldn't possibly be a victim, even though Tory Lanez had a gun. Even though, you know, we saw the x-rays with the bullets and the bullet fragments in her feet, even though, you know, there were the neighbors who heard the gunshots, even though Tory Lanez was arrested that night for holding a concealed weapon. Like all of these facts are there. And yet, you know, Megan must have been the aggressor. Megan must be the one lying. Um, it was just like a, 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 a portrait of how black women are seen and treated and um, it's it's really disheartening and sad, but also like a really good case study in this. Like it's, it's just proof that misogynoir is real. It's just proof that this is how systems and the public um, and society treats black women. It is clear that there is misogynoir and harm being done to like black women within hip hop in particular and sort of how we move forward with that. Because if Drake is, if, you know, some of these figures are really powerful. So what do we do? Like, how do we protect the black women that are in these spaces? I mean, I think that's why it's been so tough to watch this unfold because, you know, there was a lot of talk after the Me Too movement about how it never really got to the music industry and how it never really hit hip hop specifically. And I think that the reason is that hip hop was built on misogyny. I think that, um, you know, if you look at the lyrics from 
50 years ago <laughs> when we are celebrating an anniversary of hip hop and you can see how far back this goes and how ingrained it is. The abuse in the lyrics, the uh, just like bragging of how these black men treated black women it's all there. And so it's really hard to take something out of the fabric of a genre. I think it's really hard to take something out of the system of it. And so I don't know where we go from here. I think that as we've been saying, you know, this is uh, just a shining example of what black women face um, people who do not have Megan the stallion's, fame and and power and wealth but when you do have the fame and the power and wealth especially in the hip-hop industry you are held to a different standard and um you know i think that because the people in power in this industry are men they're going to continue to use that power and wield that power in a way that harms women and i don't know how that that changes um I think that we we can't look to hip hop as um, you know a radical political space anymore, and I think there's a debate about whether it it was ever at least not in this in this particular conversation when it comes to how black women are treated. It seems like there's still a lot of regression. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Yeah, it's not unique to hip hop, but yeah, that's always been there. So you know, can it be radical and political even though we know that? that has existed in hip hop, but can it be truly if it hasn't been intersectional, if it hasn't protected black women? I don't know. I mean, Dream Hampton, who is such a pillar in hip hop and has been for years, she was just talking about this and she said that it, you know, it can't be, you can't call it a political um, space that is, you know, a breeding ground for activism if it excludes black women. And so as much as black women have held up this genre and as much as Megan Thee Stallion is, you know, one of the most successful hip hop artists living right now and is, you know, a star in rap and is why the genre continues to have relevance. Megan Thee Stallion is right there doing that alongside these men and better than these men. And she is still being a victim to the way in which they wield their power. And and that is really sad and frustrating. And I, I really don't know where we go from here. I think, you know, what we can do is just continue to, to support the women who are um, doing great work in this genre, like Megan Thee Stallion, uh, like Cardi B, like a Rico Nasty. That's what you do. You know, you just continue to like support your faves and believe them and, you know, hope that they have support and protection around them. And I just hope Megan Thee Stallion, you know, finds peace through all of this. I don't have anything like uplifting to say though, because I don't think there's, there's an easy way to say, yes, women in hip hop, this is your way forward because it is too ingrained, honestly. My thanks to our guest, Refinery29's Kathleen Newman-Bermang, a woman with a crisis of abundance of last names. Thanks, Kathleen. Thanks for having me. I'm going to turn off my DMs and my comment section, but thanks for having me. All right, we made it another week in Megan the Stallion's America. 
As ever, we cap out today's episode with our moment of zen in a segment we call You Owe Me an Apology, wherein one of our listeners tells us about someone who owes them an apology. Today's guest is Caroline Moss, founder of G Thanks Just Bought It, a product recommendation company that is steadily making me broke. Take it away, Moss. You know who owes me an apology? The man who hit my Hyundai Kona five weeks ago and left me to drive a rental car for the foreseeable future because it's very hard to get parts for cars. This man and I were driving on a residential street. He was going one way. I was going the other. All of a sudden, I noticed he's drifting into my lane. I stop my car. I honk. He still drifts. I'm honking. He rams into my car. We get out of the car and I said, what was that? And he goes, oh, I know someone who lives over there. So that's where I was looking. Uh, okay. Say sorry. He never did. If you know this man, please tell him to do the right thing. That's our show this week. I'm Sachi Cole. I'm your host, and I wrote and executive produced this episode. The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer. Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com or find me on a plethora of social media platforms at S-C-A-A-C-H-I. We want to hear your thoughts, your hopes, your dreams, and of course, about who owes you an apology. Please direct any complaints or criticisms to the sky, the trees, the birds, the beauty of nature. The Waves will be back next week. In the meantime, don't let the man keep you down. Hey, Waves listeners, it's Shayna Roth. Your Slate Plus segment this week is another episode of our weekly and just like that recap. Every week from now until the end of August, I'll be taking over your weekly plus segment to talk about season two of the Sex in the City sequel series with your favorite Slatesters like Daisy Rosario, Heather Schwedell, Luke Winky, and more. If you're not currently a Slate Plus member, you can sign up now by going to slate.com slash the waves plus to get bonus content for the waves along with all of the other Slate podcasts. You'll also get unlimited access to the Slate site. No hitting that pesky paywall. Go to slate.com slash the waves plus to learn more and sign up now. Slate.com slash the waves plus. Welcome to The Waves. This is our, and just like that, recap episode 10, Guess Who's Coming to The Last Supper. I'm Shayna Roth, senior producer at Slate. And I'm Sachi Cole, and I'm hosting The Waves on Slate Podcasts for all of August. Every week, we're recapping the latest of season two of HBO's Sex and the City sequel series, the fashion, the quips, the WTF moments. Sachi, I have been loving having you as our host on The Waves these last couple weeks, and I am so excited to talk to you about And Just Like That. And since this is your first time on this particular recap, I want to start by asking you, what is your history with this, we will call it franchise extended universe? I watched some of the show when it was, like, on HBO. I definitely watched the terrible movies because they were hysterical. But I've kind of always been on the periphery. So I feel like, and just like that, is the only time I've really watched any of the Sex and the City universe in real time. So have you seen all of the original Sex and the City episodes? 
I've seen some of them in not in order. I have not watched the whole show, but I definitely know everything that happens. So like I know I know why we're all so worried about Aiden. <laughs> I do understand that. So this is fascinating because everybody else that we've had on, including myself, has seen all of the original episodes and has been super fans for a very long time. Why did you want to watch the Ant Just Like That series then? I think it's a really funny show. Like, it doesn't seem to, like, follow a lot of the logic that other TV shows like this follow. I think it's a cultural juggernaut, too. Like, it's kind of fun to be a part of the zeitgeist with a show like this. I'm not watching it the way I would watch, like, a prestige drama, certainly, where I'm, like, trying to figure out what happened or whatever. Like, I'm watching it because it's candy, and it's really fun. Um, And, I mean, I think, like the original Sex and the City, not, like, there's a lot of episodes that do not age well, and I just don't really want to, like, rehash that with a, a 2023 lens. There's no need. But this came out today, so <laughs> it's more fun to talk about it, I feel like. Though many argue, and I think the show itself would admit, that they are trying to fix a lot of those things that did not age well in the original. Yeah. It's not really working, but I kind of respect and admire the, uh, the, it's like watching a dog wear shoes (laughs) and walk outside and it's just like kicking at them and it doesn't, it's not working, but it's trying. It's trying so hard. What have you thought of this season so far? Um, this season's better than the first season of In Just Like That. Uh, I, I guess I don't really understand what it's trying to tell me or where we're going or what's happening or what it means. Or what I should think about it. So there's lots of unanswered questions. Well, we're going to try and answer maybe some of those questions in this episode because this is the penultimate episode. We're going to dive into it. And lucky for you, Sachi, I make the newbies do a 60-second recap of the episode. So I've got my timer ready. And I will hold it up for you. I've got 60 seconds here. Are you ready? Yeah, I think so. Okay, go. Okay, Charlotte starts working in an art gallery and all <laughs> that timer really stresses me out. And all of the girls that she's working with are very fun and then they go out for drinks and she gets wasted and like ignores her family and it's beautiful because uh, who cares about her family? And then Carrie buys a giant apartment the size of the Mall of America in the middle of Manhattan and I still don't understand where that space physically is in New York City. But then Aiden has a whole thing with his son who steals his car and crashes it and because he was drinking and there's, I, it's, I don't know what's happening, but maybe they're moving to Virginia I'm not sure and then um, uh, uh, Seema says I love you to the director I do not know why I think they made Lisa miscarry which is I have several thoughts about that oh god Um, uh, Che was mean to Miranda in a stand up thing and uh, uh, oh Naya's ex is pregnant and she bought them a very expensive pram oh uh, Stanford is in a Stanford is a monk? <laughs> I totally forgot about Stanford is a monk. That's there's there's always yeah. so much going on with this show that I can never keep all of the storylines straight. It is impossible. Stanford's a monk. Let's do that first and then we're going to do things a little bit different this episode. We're just going to dig into all of our central characters and what has been happening and where this might be going in the final episode. But first, let's Let's hit on that Stanford thing, because I know that Willie Garson uh, died in real life, and that's the main reason that his character is not on the show, but they never finally wrote him off on the show. They never killed him off on the show, and so Stanford has sort of just been out by himself. So 
to bring him back or his character back with a badly photoshopped picture saying that he is now a monk. I don't know, man. I don't know that I needed it. It doesn't feel quite right. What are your thoughts? The entire Sex in the City universe seems obsessed with closure. And I appreciate why, because it's such a, again, because it is a cultural juggernaut, this show's been on the air for like, it, it's been in our zeitgeist for like 25 years. I can appreciate wanting to be able to close chapters when you are in a role for such a long time or you're talking about these characters for such a long time, but there's no way to give you closure about most of this because they are having real life things happen to these actors. <laughs> out off the show and that's why we can't have closure on them so it was odd I get that they didn't want to kill him and there was no need but I also don't know anybody who was like where is he that was just some of our slate plus segment if you want to hear the whole thing go to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a slate plus member today slate.com slash the waves plus this is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Grainger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Grainger, for the ones who get it done.